are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Happy Tuesday, Manufactured listeners! We can hardly believe it's the last week of September and that we are already four months into launching this project. Over the last four months, we've heard a lot about the challenges suppliers within the fashion supply chain face in terms of driving the sustainability agenda forward, from access to capital for new technology and machinery to the complexity of educating counterparts within brands and also consumers about different production possibilities, to price negotiations and the difficulty of covering the extra costs of more sustainably made products, to the impact of fear on communication across the supply chain. So, well, we had the chance to talk to Ariel Muller and Martin Su about their collaboration on Circular Leap Asia, a project exploring what it would take for manufacturers to take the lead on circularity. We were thrilled. We wound up talking quite a bit about a challenge we haven't really talked about before on this podcast, and that's supplier mindset. How do suppliers shift their mindset from simply executing a brand's demands to leading the conversation? And how can we support suppliers with this mindset shift in a way that doesn't reduce their challenges to mindset alone? Aria is based in Singapore and is the Managing Director for Asia at Forum for the Future. Forum for the Future is a leading international nonprofit working with business, government, and civil society to solve complex sustainability challenges. And Martin is the head of sustainability for YiChain International. YiChain International is a manufacturer of high-quality performance fabrics and neoprene rubber foam for globally recognized footwear brands. Founded in 1997 in Taiwan, YiChain International now operates in Taiwan, China, Vietnam, and Indonesia. If you like what you hear today, you are in luck. Circular Leap Asia has just published an insightful report sharing insights gleaned from the project, and we highly recommend reading it in full. Tomorrow, Forum for the Future is hosting a free webinar about the report. You can find the links to the webinar and the full report in our show notes. Come back next week for part two of this conversation, when we'll talk to Ariel and to Martin about how the sector can build trust, relationships, and networks to ensure that we emerge from the COVID crisis, ready to drive the deep transformation the industry so desperately needs. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person. We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Welcome, Ariel and Martin. We're so happy you're here. Let's start by just giving listeners a bit of context. What's Circular Leap Asia and what's the new report that's just come out? Certainly. So um, the title of the report, which is Making the Leap to Circular Fashion, is uh, really the culmination. It's culmination of a program called Circular Leap Asia, which was an innovation program that um, Forum uh, began about two years ago. And it was really based on the premise that if we're going to 
achieve the type of transformation that we need in terms of the transition to a circular economy that manufacturers need to be at the table. And not only manufacturers need to be at the table, but we're missing an incredible opportunity and capacity for innovation if we don't have manufacturers at the table seeing themselves as part of driving that transformation. Uh, We received funding from the CNA Foundation to help, now called the Loudest Foundation, to kick it off. And And the premise was that we would run three pilots with three different manufacturers to identify how they could drive the conversation with brands in terms of accelerating the transition to a circular economy. And this report then shares what we learned during that journey. Martin, what's your, can you share a bit about your involvement in this project then? You're one, I mean, Yichain is one of the partners, right? Right, right. Yeah, we're one of the three. Martin, in those early days, <laughs> why, did you, why did you agree to do it? So in that moment, I was like, okay, seem, seemingly that this industry, the textile, the fashion industry, can do something good, right? They can change to be better for the environment. And now I kind of see the connection that potentially my expertise can do something here. So from that point on, it was roughly the summer of 2018, I started to run some projects, uh, looking into different segments of the company, try to make things green, so to speak, or circular, if you want to call it now. Um, and one of the topics is waste. One of the topics is waste. Uh, and that was the very first one that's very obvious uh, that we know as, as my manufacturer exists. Uh, it generates costs for us, and it, it's problematic uh, every year or every half a year, I'll say, to deal with. So by the time that I learned about uh, Circular Asia, I was like, okay, this might be a good opportunity for us to look into the problem in a more systematic way. That's one, but also to potentially give us a, I don't know if it's the right word, a weapon <laughs> uh, to you know attack or like, you know, go outwards to the brain to try to figure something out. Because... I can feel there's something wrong. Like it's not something that we can deal with it ourselves. And I think this whole program gave us an opportunity to really look at it from a different lens. And it's kind of what I enjoy. I'm kind of an outsider, right? So I think it would be good to have somebody who's in a way also like an outsider, like an NGO. Um, I guess that's another background. The company has been going on for 20 plus years. We never work with NGOs as a company. And I don't know if Ariel still remember, but when she came to Taiwan to conduct a workshop, that was the first time in 20 some years that we had a workshop. Yeah. I mean, and it was also in English. It's like, what the heck? You know, like, it's just very, <laughs> very, very new. And people, I mean, they like it, uh, but just very different. Like, that every, like everyone gets to talk. People are like, what the heck is this? You know, like most of the time people have meetings, the managers talk, people just kind of like listen and take notes. Uh, and you sit in the chairs looking at presentations. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of change. And I, I kind of, wanting to bring that into the company and try to find a solution, but also try to generate a different vibe because I think that's what we needed to make a difference. Jesse and I were both struck by a quote by you in the report, Ariel, which I want to read. Um, and it was, when we embarked on the Circular Leap Asia program two years ago, we thought that the job at hand would entail convincing manufacturers to step up to the plate. What we learned was that many manufacturers are more than ready to think and do things differently. So, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about that. How did that shift kind of come about? I mean, it's meeting it's meeting the partners that we met. I think it's individuals that recognize what's happening externally in the world and then looking at within their own circle of influence, how can they make a difference? And I think what I admire 
about the people that we worked with. So I, I and I, it's interesting that it's it's the individuals I think that are catalyzing that shift. Um, what I admire is uh, it's just how darn <laughs> hard it is. And that you are literally locked into a system that in, that require you still to generate that waste or to burn that waste, that mm-hmm. burn that waste. Um, the type of uh, bravery it takes to say yes, even as even if we're locked into the system, we're going to try to figure out what it means to change it. So I think that's a perfect transition because if one of your part of your own journey, Ariel, was realizing just how ready these individuals and manufacturers are to think and do things differently. Um, What do you and you too, Martin, what do you guys perceive the barriers to be? Uh, What's holding manufacturers back from taking the leap? Uh, Sure, Uh, I can give you a shot. I think one of the biggest um, challenge that people always say or the barrier would be always saying that we are not in control. Um, like most manufacturers would think they are always just there to listen to what the brands have to say uh, and just to react, right? Like if they need something to be more, you know, human rights focused, make sure we pay the workers, that we just do it. Uh, if they want this to be less polluting with different certifications or different people coming to auditing with water pollution issues, we just do it. Um, so, so it's a long time, right? It's, it's, a, it's a long time relationship been doing that for the past um, years, 10 plus years, maybe even more longer than that, that manufacturers just need to react, right? As long as you're not asking too much and I can still get orders from you, uh, get money and expand my, my operations, Everybody keeps it quiet, and that's okay. Uh, and, and and I think that mindset has been very ingrained to like like us, like manufacturers, suppliers. That uh, even like my, my my dad will be always having that mindset. It's like always the brands they have to say yes, so we can do things. So that's why I think one of the biggest barrier uh, to to really to make change is that you are so fixed in the mindset that you are not in control. And, and to be to be, to be fair, in sometimes we're not. Uh, like, like the, a lot of the operations, whether it is from the, uh, the rules of the brands, the rule of the wherever you are in the world that operates, uh, the, the laws of the legal system of that country, um, or just the availability of your options at where you are. Uh, maybe there's just no recycling facilities. <laughs> maybe there's only landfills. Uh, you know, so, so it's a lot of those things are not in your control. And, and making that so it's very hard to start. So I guess that's that's one thing I'll mention. It's one of the biggest one that you we don't feel that we're in control, and which is true in a way. And, and the other one, it's uh, it's it's I think really depends on where you are in the supply chain. Uh, I'm only here as one of the manufacturer of a very long supply chain of textile, uh, and, and and there are more in the in the in that whole um, sections that you know from the very beginning generating either less like you know cotton that's from bio-based material or it's from petrochemicals making the pellets uh, making the yarns uh, do the knitting and then we are more focused on the dyeing processes a little bit of the knitting and then yeah ne- next steps there's people who make it into purse bags t- uh, t-shirts or shoes so it really depends on also where you are there are also i would say a difference in power uh and, and or going back to the first or in control, like the, the, the control feeling, it's also different. Some part of the tiers may not feel they have control at all. 
like and and also like sometimes a joke for us we, we, we treat some of the parts as like, oh yeah they're just basically the same as the brains they'll follow what the brains say they don't have free will in that regard so that's definitely also another barrier that depends on where you stay in the whole supply chain some supply chain segments are more powerful than the other i would say at least in the textile sector uh and then, and then the last but not the least and i think this applies to everything right trying something new doing something different especially nowadays for for it to be more sustainable environment friendly it always costs more because you're going against the current system right if i'm just buying everything i see in the market it's easy it's cheap but if i want to really get something that's good for my health and the environment maybe it's organic uh kind of produce i need to you know potentially read about it find where is it on a shelf and when i finally find it find it i may need to pay more and that's the same thing with what we are trying to do here i, I would say with um with fashion and textile, it's it's same thing. If we wanted to use a different way to produce, uh, to reduce waste, to reduce water, to reduce emission, it's not helping us in the terms of cost. So, yeah, so just for, for I think for me, those are my three points I will share. That's the barriers. Yeah, and I I I, I would echo those, and particularly the mindset piece. I think it's even saying what would it look like to explore changing the type of conversation that you have with a brand just doesn't almost doesn't make sense. Sometimes it just, it doesn't compute. Like, why would I do that? And what will I risk if I do that? And I, and I think in many ways that, I mean, they are in a good position now because they have met the brand's needs well. So why would you not, why would you not, why would you disrupt what's always worked in the past? Um, the other thing I would add in terms of barrier is Martin spoke about kind of that dynamic of the mindset that actually we need to make sure that we're meeting the brand's needs as well as we possibly can in order to continue to succeed. There's also another pressure on the system, which I think is um, uh, fat, the dynamics of fast fashion, consumers changing what they want um, suppliers needing to respond to that shorter delivery times, which put, is putting even more pressure onto that that current dynamic, which I think is um, almost, it, it just seems unsustainable in the long term um, in terms of uh, that additional pressure on the, on the system. It's quite uh, interesting because, uh, Martin, from what you said, I, I heard a word and that right away trigger a question I, was, I have been thinking recently. It's uh, overproducing. It's very funny when you think about it because no supplier will produce when there is no order. Right. So if no order, no production, then how come we say overproducing instead of we saying overordering? You see, the mindset is so implanted even in manufacturer's mind that the whole world is saying garments, including footwear, is overproducing. Yeah, overproducing. Really? Or overordering or a too aggressive business forecast from the brands. So yeah, mm-hmm. mindset is really the thing here that we manufacturers also believe we are responsible for overproducing, but no, we're not. We're just producing per orders. My first thought is, yeah, language matters. And I love this distinction between overproducing versus overordering. I, I should qualify that, you know, manufacturers might actually overproduce even in the absence of an order. 
Um, you mentioned yourself uh, sometimes that uh, we produce to a forecast. So maybe that forecast has come from a brand and it, you know, overestimates how much uh, how many products are going to be sold, um, but it's not yet been turned into an order, but the manufacturer still produces based on that forecast. Sometimes, um, and when I was a factory manager, I did this as well. I would, I would receive a forecast and I would think mm, based on the ordering history and based on everything I know that's happening, I think it's actually going to come in higher. So I'm going to produce a little bit higher. So I'm ready. But really what all of this speaks to, too, is the challenge of lead time. And, you know, overproduction really is a way of um, coping with incredibly short lead times. And as a supplier, making sure that you're ready and in a position to be able to accommodate when your comp- when your customer comes and says, "Oh, actually, I want I want more," and then of course, yes, Jesse, as you point out, there are also cases where the customer just orders too much, um, and uh, then doesn't want the products in the end. But I I don't want to get lost too much in these details because I think the important point to take away here is that the use of the word over overproduction as opposed to overordering that language you know implicitly locates responsibility on the production side and sort of i think obscures these sort of more complex systematic forces at play which might distribute which if you looked at them might distribute responsibility a little bit differently i want to shift gears a little bit here to touch on something else It's so interesting that all three of you in different ways have talked about mindset as a barrier to supplier leadership. And I had a conversation recently in a very different context with a manufacturer in Sri Lanka where this also came up and he described it very much as a legacy of colonialism. And he shared that his colleagues were often very reluctant to contradict their Western customers in a meeting or to propose things that might ruffle some feathers And the dynamics in the room are just so much more complicated than standard business-to-client relationships where the business is out to ensure client or customer satisfaction. And like you said, Jesse, these ideas about what our roles are, what our place in the world is, are just so implanted. And dismantling and disentangling oneself from those legacies is an important enabling condition to suppliers taking the lead on sustainability or circularity. But... Even as I say this, I have very mixed feelings about what I'm saying. It reminds me of some of the conversations that happened a few years ago around Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. On the one hand, it was a really empowering book for a lot of women, and it made women aware, I think, of all the nuanced and implicit ways that we might hold ourselves back. And because of that, it was also, it was really, and that's really what made it empowering. Like, if I change my mindset, the sky is the the limit. On the other hand, I think it's dangerous to reduce women's position in society to mindset because there are a lot of real structural barriers that hold women back, which also need to be acknowledged. 
And it almost makes it like a double burden because women have been held back by a system which they didn't create and wasn't designed for them. And saying that as women, all we need to do is change our mindset not only ignores all of those structure, but also implicitly labels us the problem. And that's what I mean by, by double burden somehow. But I guess what's complicated and where I, end up, where I ended up landing when these conversations were happening a few years ago is that these two narratives aren't mutually exclusive. They can coexist. And, and in fact, achieving change might actually depend on both of these narratives being true. And so women dismantling certain implicit assumptions about the role of women sort of in their own minds might be part of the solution. And so too might, be, might other initiatives be that, that try to address these broader barriers. So when it comes to this conversation, I have to say like I, it often makes me feel, I don't know if stuck is the right word or nervous because I want to talk about and acknowledge one type of change without implicitly negating another. And trying to strike this equilibrium and trying to always tell multiple narratives at once is, it feels like an ongoing balancing act. Like how can I, as a sustainability advocate, support and advocate for manufacturer agency in a way that acknowledges the importance of mindset, but doesn't inadvertently reduce our sustainability problems within the industry to problems of mindset alone? that in a way that doesn't kind of land suppliers with this double burden, that doesn't ignore the very real historical, economic, social, and political systems that have often marginalized and disenfranchised so many within this particular group in the first place. You are absolutely right, Kim, about this uh, systematic barrier for fashion suppliers. Like Martin described just now, suppliers in a shorter supply chain versus suppliers in a longer supply chain, the control they could have is totally different, no matter what kind of mindset they have. Imagine I'm a fabric mill producing cotton fabrics. I could decide to use cotton from uh, organic farms or traditional farms. I could also decide the dyeing process. But once the fabric is done and delivered, I can't decide what people will do with the well-produced uh, cotton fabric. You see, as an individual supplier in a longer chain, I probably want to do everything in a very sustainable way, but my actual power to control or influence the whole process is practically very small. And you know what? The purple elephant in the room is money. Because we're talking about money, right? Because think about it. It's, uh, it's not just the brands have the pressure or manufacturers have pressure when you want to do something different. Brands have pressure too, which is uh, they needed to make profits. So profits, margins, and prices or costs are the, are the elephant in the room. We talk about sustainability or circular fashion. We, we have to eventually touch this question. Yeah, I, I feel like in the near term, there is all the inefficiency that's baked into the system now that's about process and ordering. Like, I think that's the kind of first horizon. If you were to go further out in terms of what really enables a transition to a circular economy, and we're almost looking at systems within systems, eventually the consumer is going to have to play a role in terms of what it means to enable a circular economy. Because what's driving this is the sense of, well, this is what the consumer wants. This is what the consumer needs. And I had a conversation with a colleague recently where we were talking about actually the consumer needs to see themselves as part of a reverse logistics solution. Now, that's not the way you would sell it to a consumer. 
come be part of reverse logistics. But actually, to enable the transition to a circular economy, the consumer has to close the loop. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I, you know, that's like a, another sort of horizon out there is that I think at one, one point we have to, we consumers have to see ourselves as part of a, a, a future manufacturing system that closes the loop and not just a consumer that receives it at the end of a value chain. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think there'll be a, sh- it'll, it'll take time, but I think eventually some of those new business models, they'll be enabled because the consumer also had a mindset shift in terms of their role in a circular uh, apparel manufacturing. I want to push on this a little bit because as a m- m- former manufacturer myself, and also throughout this podcast, we've talked to so many suppliers who really are trying to take the lead, whether it's circularity specifically or sustainability initiatives more generally. And it really, I mean, price is a really big barrier. You know, I'll just give you an example. I, at, at, uh, Pactix, we were the owner of Pactix was working on. We use a lot of um, dyed microfibers, and he was working on an alternative that was going to be a more. It was a waterless dyeing technique, and he went and found a supplier who could supply us fabric that was dyed in a more environmentally friendly way. And it was going to, initially, we asked for a very small price increase when we when we were trying to sell our customer on this product. And uh, that was a no-go. So then we said, well, we'll offer it to you for the same price. And over the last 10 years, our margins have gone down by about 30%. And... Um, and then they said, well, and so we were offering a better quality product. It had better color fastness results. It was the same price and it was more sustainable. And our customer said to us, well, this is great, but we still can't do it because it would mean transitioning this whole portfolio of production over for this particular product over to you. And that's too much of a risk. We want to have this spread out across. We have our production spread out across a couple of different suppliers and we, you know, it would be it would be too risky for us to put to put all of our production to you. And I share this anecdote because I think like Jesse's right, it's the elephant in the room is, you know, we can talk about mindset forever until we're blue in the face. But, 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 but somewhere we have to also be talking about distribution of risk and reward yeah. and, and having people, you know, cons- cu- customers. And when I say customer, I mean brand, but then also after that end consumer, able and willing to pay for it. Yeah, no, I agree. That was one of the things we found that we sort of highlighted in the report as well, is that there has to be more shared risk across the value chain in terms to enable this transition. Absolutely. In terms of passing the cost on to um, consumers, I, that it's hard. It does sound really hard. And I don't know, you know, is it a generational, will it take a, gen, a shift in a generation that's experienced 10 years of climate impacts? You know, I, I don't know um, uh, in terms of what, what will enable that to happen. But I do think uh, the cost, it is, it is, as you said, Jesse, it's the elephant in the room. And until that's addressed, then we will keep 
um, I always have this image of like these, these engines of growth that just keep operating until we just go right off a cliff because we couldn't step back and look at the bigger picture in terms of this forever, you know, always, always growing more and always reducing the cost as the only uh, paradigm of thinking about well-being, bringing value to the, to, 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 to the customer. There was a piece that um, my colleague Jay wrote in the, the, the paper where she said, she asked the question, um, what is the role, what value can the fashion industry bring uh, to consumers? And, and, and I love the, or just even the question, what is the role of the fashion industry in terms of bringing value and how do you define value? Because if you define value as actually how we create value throughout the entire supply chain with workers, with local communities, um, with how we address the um, uh, these critical sustainability challenges and you redefine value, then you would begin to kind of create that paradigm shift instead of value as just a cost paradigm. I'm, I'm just thinking when we talk about shared risks, when we talk about cost prices or cost passed down to the end consumers, we were talking about shared risks. How about we talk about shared profits? It sounds a bit... <laughs> I know, it sounds... A, I mean, between brands and end consumers, this is one story, but there is another story at the same time, which is between brands and the manufacturers. So if brands go for endless business growth every year, which they have their reasons. We will not talk about this now. But so if brands could have business growth every year, why not share that growth with their manufacturers? So instead of talking about shared risks as if switching system is a huge risk thing, which is, but how about we talk about profits? There are also profits and the profits are already there. So how about let's talk about shared profits? It, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's about, it's about sharing where is the value created and then how is value distributed equally across the value chain? The other thing I wonder with time is that as, as we become increasingly more digitalized and there's more trends, there's more demand for transparency across the value chain, that those business models that some brands won't start to differentiate based on the fact that they do do that. And I'm not familiar enough with Everlane. You know, I haven't scrutinized Everlane's um, mm reports and things like that. But I know that they were based on that premise that will actually distribute value differently. Yeah, it's a pretty, as a concept, it's a pretty radical idea to be transparent about how much of the, uh, how much of the end consumer price is going to whom and to which part of the supply chain. Martin, what about you? What do you, does this resonate with you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, definitely. I was just thinking about how does that apply because it's definitely a, a, a cost thing right because it's uh, if we were to do something different there's always an extra cost and and what you just described about how you change your product to make it more you know sustainable but then you, you still actually have the same cost uh and price offering that happened to mm-hmm. us as well you know <laughs> that we did the same thing uh and it's it's, it's very interesting to see that that in that regard uh kind of what um Jesse was talking about the whole idea of sharing profit isn't there, right? Because it's, it's more about sharing the risk in the sense of, well, more like bearing the risk for the brands so they can maintain their profit. Obviously, we, we calculated and we kind of like 
you know, hoping and aiming for a, a future that would be able to have the return later on. That's, that's why we made the decision. But it's more like the, at a very upfront point of a view. Um, what they wanted to do is to have, have the cost to be the same. It's not about, okay, maybe we should, you know, accept it to be, I don't know, 5% higher than what it used to be. Uh, and then that, that whole mindset just does not exist. And I, I don't think I can speak for all the brands that we work with, but then a lot of them have a certain kind of department that we talk about. Well, I mean, not talk about, I guess their mission of the department is to basically bargain. Is to, to, to cut Their costs. bonuses are based on it. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so it, when those kind of departments exist, how can we talk about shared profit benefits? It's very difficult based on what you say out there to the public. How is that even possible? You know, like if you want to cut carbon emission, you want to cut waste, are you helping us to support that new machinery or whatever that would be? So I'm curious, like within within this pilot that you described where you were working as part of Circular Leap Asia to reduce waste, like what was your, how did you guys cope with this? I mean, did you have any stakeholders on the brand side or how did you engage with your customers throughout this project? So I, I think, uh, I guess before I jump into that question, I have to clarify there's two parts of what we are trying to work on. The, there's the first part uh, of the project that we just do it ourselves, basically. We, we look into the whole uh, system and the flow and try to figure out what are the, um, well, what's the situation, basically. Like, where are the spots in the operation that generates waste and how can we change it internally uh, just by ourselves, right? Like, whether it's through some procedure change, different percentage when we do some calculations, uh, or just a totally different system when we treat uh, the material or the waste, it, where it goes, whatever. So that's, that's one part. The other part uh, that fits to the question I just asked, how do we use that data uh, and information uh, going into the workshop I just mentioned earlier with Ariel and others uh, to generate some potential ideas that we can start the conversation with the brands uh, and to poke around to see if there's anything of the interests they are supporting to change. And I will say that we did not directly talk to the costing department per se. Uh, it was more, when we started, it was more, of course, talking to the personnel that we are familiar with and have some capacity uh, relates to sustainability. So it's not really, I would say, lost, lost far anyway, not focused on the cost part. Uh, I guess we haven't got there yet. <laughs> uh, but but the, the conversation we've been having so far is more about the ones that are uh, either focus on sustainability or they are doing the production and they are loan partners with us in the past that we are looking to the procedure to see, okay, so if we were to have this sustainability goal to reduce waste, how can we do that in your, in our current uh, collaboration uh, to change the processes? So I guess in a way we're trying to avoid it. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to avoiding, yeah, I mean, we're trying to avoiding the, the price or cost topic by just changing the way we work. It's more focused on how can we make it more efficient in the name of saving waste. Uh, and by doing so, there won't be potentially external costs like, oh, yeah, you need to buy this thing. Oh, yeah, you need to get this uh, extra um, software hey. or whatever. So that's kind of the approach that we have so far, I would say. Hey, this is very interesting, Kim. Remember? Sorry, Martin. Remember? Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. The episode, we, the interview we just did to... Um... To Matthew, because Martin, this is exactly yeah. what they're doing, changing the narrative. Is that what you are thinking too, Kim? That you switch yeah. the narrative from cost benefits to what is good? What's the value, the extra value you can bring? What's the sustainability activities? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, we had a conversation, I don't know, a few months ago with someone who said exactly the same thing. He said, mm -hmm. like, part of part of this is like changing the narrative. We can't talk about this in terms of cost savings. We have to frame it very differently, which is the perfect transition for talking about trust and relationships, which is what we'll talk about next week when we share part two of this conversation. And specifically, we'll look at COVID-19 is a tough setback, but it also represents an opportunity to calibrate industry power dynamics and to experiment with new circular business models. So how do we build trust? How do we build relationships? How do we build networks to ensure that we emerge from this current crisis, ready to drive the deep transformation that we so desperately need as an industry? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.